Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Today we're going to continue our way working through the Sermon on the Mount, and I think the reason why I'm particularly excited for this episode is because when we start reaching these verses, this is in particular where people stop seeing the connective tissue between the sections Jesus is talking about here and the things that he said immediately preceding it, right? This is where people start experiencing that disconnect and they start treating the Sermon on the Mount more like just like separate little anecdotes that Jesus is talking about. But my goal in this episode is to kind of convince you that there is a connective tissue underlying all of this and that everything that Jesus is saying in this section directly builds off the things that he has already established in the first chapter and a half of this sermon. Uh, and so in order to really understand this, we do have to kind of recap some context. And I know that people probably get tired of me recapping context, but the reasons I do that are twofold. Uh, first off, the more you repeat something, the more likely it is for you to remember it. And so that's just a helpful teaching technique in general. But also the reason I want to repeat this is because it has a direct influence on the things we're about to read. And so if we forget the context, then we're going to interpret things differently. And so just to remind you of the kind of the context of this whole sermon, Jesus begins the whole thing by talking about the types of people that he's looking for in his kingdom, right? He lists out the Beatitudes. He talks about the people being the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And then he goes on and describes how he views himself and his relationship to the Old Testament law. And he basically explains what he is trying to communicate in the sermon. And he's communicating that he expects his followers to adhere to a higher form of righteousness than that which has been attained by even the scribes and the Pharisees who were like the righteous of the righteous people at this time period. Jesus says, if your righteousness is only on par with them, you don't belong in my kingdom. And so then what he goes on to do for the back half of chapter five is he really just begins to cite some Old Testament examples in the law of just different things that God commanded. And Jesus gives his interpretation of the law. But whenever he gives his interpretation, he isn't acting like just one of the rabbis giving a interpretation. He is basically asserting that this is the interpretation that God intended when he gave that law. And what he's promoting is a redemptive form of righteousness, right? A righteousness that isn't simply concerned Concerned with doing good and not doing bad, but a righteousness that seeks to actually redeem the evils in the world by taking those evils upon yourself and sacrificially living in such a way as to promote kingdom restoration, right? And so that's really all of chapter five. And then when we get into chapter six, Jesus really begins taking the hypocrites head on, right? And by the hypocrites, he's probably meaning the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he did for the first 18 verses of chapter six is that he was really contrasting two types of lifestyles, right? Two righteous people who are doing righteous things, but they're doing righteous things for different motives and for different reasons. On one hand, you've got a person who is living righteously, but they're practicing their righteousness before men. And that's because they want the praise and the honor of men man. And so they might be going through all the religious activities and the religious motions that we associate with righteousness, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. On the other hand, Jesus contrasts this first person with another person, a kingdom citizen, right? And this kingdom citizen is a person who does the righteousness in the eyes of God, regardless of whether man is watching. And that is the person that Jesus says that he values in his kingdom. And basically that has been his whole point right here. There are two 
types of people and the righteousness that these two types of people practice, uh, it basically tells us what God they serve, who they seek honor from, and ultimately why they're trying to be righteous to begin with. Uh, and one thing that we can probably highlight throughout all of this uh, is that Jesus just expects his followers to at least adhere to some form of righteousness, right? Uh, there is no such thing as a wicked person in the kingdom of God, right? There is no such person who is just living their life just immersing themselves in sin, right? Jesus assumes that his followers will live righteous lives because that's just inherent to following God. But what he's highlighting is that dead religious action is not enough, right? This, like ultimately your righteousness has to be preceded by a relationship with God where you're devoted to him and wanting to give him more of yourself, right? That's mainly what Jesus is highlighting. And so technically there are three types of people, right? There's the people who are just living in their sin, doing whatever they want. Then there's the righteous people who are living righteously, but ultimately their righteousness is just a hidden form of wickedness because they're using the righteousness to praise themselves. And then there's the third category, which Jesus wants his followers to belong to, who are simply living righteously lives because they love God and seek to honor him. And they're doing it not for the praise of man, but for the praise of God. I summarize all that context because that context is going to directly flow into the section we're talking about right here, because just like he contrasted two types of people in the beginning of chapter six, he's also going to contrast two types of people in this back half of chapter six as well. And one thing that you'll probably notice as we go through this is that this section has a lot of very similar parallels to the book of Proverbs. So if when Jesus went up onto the ser onto the mountain to begin preaching the sermon, if he was kind of walking in the footsteps of Moses when he did that, in this section, he seems to be walking more in the footsteps of King Solomon, right? The Proverbs giver, right? The wise man giving his just edicts and just pronouncements and discerning statements from the top of the mountain, right? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here in this section as we get into it. Uh, and just to kind of point out what I mean right here, um, whenever you go look at the Proverbs, right, probably this section right here is the most similar to Proverbs of anything in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a lot of parallels with the book of Proverbs in the Sermon on the Mount itself, but this section in particular. When you go look at the book of Proverbs, Solomon basically presents his readers with two different paths they can take, right? One path, it takes you towards wisdom and another path takes you towards folly. Um, the way that Solomon presents it in the book of Proverbs is that one path leads you towards lady wisdom and then the other one leads you to the prostitute or the harlot folly, right? And obviously Solomon wants his hearers or his readers to take the path of wisdom, right? Jesus is going to do the same thing. He's going to present people with two paths. One path leads you towards the world and one path leads you towards the kingdom. And we've already seen this dichotomy in the first half of chapter six, right? You got the people who practice the righteousness before men and those people might be living quote unquote righteous lives, but in the end, really, they're simply following in the ways of the world just with a righteous disguise on. On the other hand, Jesus is going to contrast the people who are pursuing the way of the world with those people who are pursuing the way of the kingdom. And these people are not going to be doing things for the praise of men. These people are not going to be doing things because they serve the wealth here on earth. They're going to be doing things because they serve another kingdom, a kingdom that is, to quote the Gospel of John, not of this world. And so that right there is already one parallel we have with the book of Proverbs. 
but there's also additional parallels as well, right? Um, really, there's more than I'm going to belabor right here because you can go look in them for yourself because I don't want y'all to be here forever. I, I like to be mindful of your time in these podcasts uh, and in these videos. But um, another way that he parallels the book of Proverbs is whenever he, like, like if you go back to the book of Proverbs, there's many places where Solomon will tell his readers to go observe creation, right? Go look at the ant, you sluggard. And basically Solomon will say how just looking at creation and slowing down and taking time to observe God's created order can actually give you very valuable insight to how God is conducting things in the world. And so Jesus is going to make the same exact argument right here whenever he tells us to go look at creation in order to learn something about how God is working in the world. And ultimately, where Jesus is going to head with all of this is that the way that you interact with the world is going to testify to who your master truly is. In the end, it's really a matter of trust. Who do you trust? God or the world, right? The way that you conduct yourself in this world will testify to who your master is. It'll testify to what you treasure in life. And that's ultimately where he's heading with this, which will lead him to this final section on anxiety, where he's going to kind of kind of point out the fact that if you're a person who is constantly, constantly, constantly filled with anxiety, you might be serving the world a little bit too much. Whereas kingdom citizens, they don't have any need to be anxious, not because they have everything in the world, but because they know that they can trust God to provide for them, even in the midst of their lack. And if they do lack things in the world, despite being faithful to God, then maybe God has appointed this time um, for some other reason that they don't even understand, right? So really, it's a matter of trust. And that is not a popular teaching nowadays. And unfortunately, I don't hear us talking about anxiety in such a way from our pulpits very often nowadays. But it is what Jesus says. And so that all being said, there is basically the context and overview of what I'm wanting to talk about today. What say you that we actually hop in and just talk about this passage in particular? So Matthew chapter six, starting in verse 19, this is what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Uh, and what this is right here, these first three verses, is basically um, Jesus doing the same thing that he's done in the previous sections of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's basically listing one example after another to demonstrate a point, right? So whenever you went to the Beatitudes, he listed multiple examples of what type of people he's looking for. Then he talked about the salt and the light, right? Two different examples of what he's looking for in his followers. Whenever you got to the commandments, he listed out five different Old Testament commandments, and he gave his interpretation of those commandments. And then at the beginning of chapter six, he listed out multiple different examples to compare and contrast the people who were living with the righteousness before men and those who were living righteously before God. Same thing here. He's going to list three examples that basically drive home the point that he is trying to make in regards to righteousness and what ultimately he is trying to get people to understand. And really what he's trying to drive home is that it's ultimately about what you value. So he just listed all these examples of people who were doing one thing in order to appear righteous. And he contrasted those with people who were doing righteous things, not because they wanted to appear righteous, but simply because they wanted to please God. Right. And he compared in contrast people who were making rewards on earth and rewards in heaven. Right. The rewards in heaven, he hasn't even specified really what those are going to be. But the rewards on earth is simply the praise of men and whatever comes along with that. Right. So whether that be wealth, riches, fame, any of that stuff, those are the treasures here on earth. 
And Jesus says right here in verses 19 to 21, that the way that you conduct your life will testify to what you truly value. So he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So when he's talking about treasures on earth, he's not simply talking about physical wealth. He's talking about the rewards given by man. Whenever he talked about the hypocrites standing on the street corners, praying these long, proud prayers, he says that people are going to see them and be noticed by them and they're going to be amazed by them. And that's the reward, right? And so whenever we're thinking about treasures on earth, we're not simply talking about physical wealth. We are, we can be talking about that, right? That is definitely part of this. But it also goes a little bit broader than that, right? It is the attention that we seek from man. It is the reputation that we care about from men. He says, ultimately, don't focus on storing that up for yourself here on earth, right? He's not saying that those things are inherently bad. He just says those aren't things to focus on storing up because ultimately those things are fleeting, right? Don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, right? Ultimately, you can spend your entire life amassing all of these things here on earth and they will be taken away, either when you die or before you die. If you spend your entire life focused on saving up millions and millions of dollars, well, what if somebody breaks in and steals that money? If you devote your entire life to being viewed with this, you know, if you spend your entire life trying to get people to be impressed by you, what happens whenever cultural values change and the things that once impressed people one day are now the opposite of what impresses people the next day, right? All of a sudden you spent your entire life trying to impress people who ultimately were just serving the same world that you were serving. And so Jesus is pointing out that it's a futile activity to go about doing this. And so I think really what he's doing is he's being just like Solomon and he's pointing out the logic in the situation, right? So he's saying it just doesn't make sense logically speaking, to serve the kingdom of the world because the kingdom of the world is by nature a temporal thing that is passing away. On the other hand, he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. So what is he pointing out here? He's pointing out that God, unlike man, is unchanging. God, unlike the world, is eternal, right? God is not going to change. There is no shadow or variation within him. What he values, he has always valued. He does value now and he will always value it, right? He is not going to pass away and the reward that you receive from him is not going to pass away. And he's not simply talking about eternal life here, right? He's talking about the appreciation that God shows towards people who do righteous things here on earth and engage in the redemptive righteousness that Jesus has been talking about so far. Right? That's exactly what Jesus is highlighting right here. So whenever you go pray, you don't have to pray a loud prayer on the street corner unless the situation absolutely demands it. If at all possible, retreat into your closet, fall on your knees, fall on your face, and just cry out to God. Because the God, your Father in heaven, who sees in secret, he will see what you're doing. And you know what? Maybe people won't look more highly upon you. Maybe people won't know how righteous a person you are. But God sees that, and there is some sort of eternal reward in heaven for that, and that eternal reward cannot be taken from you, because people who would want to steal it, they don't even know that you have it, right? That's the beauty of this, right? Even if a thief could steal it, they would have to know about it first, but even if they did know about it, they can't steal it, right? And so just logically speaking, it makes more sense to serve the kingdom of heaven than to serve the kingdom on earth, because the kingdom of heaven... It offers you rewards that are eternal and that they're not 
fluctuating based off of the um the waiting patterns of the sea, right? How people just, we kind of fluctuate from one side to another. There are certain jokes in comedy shows that will not land nowadays that landed 10 years ago. And the people who were at the height of popularity 10 years ago are now being canceled left and right in our current culture because people change. God doesn't change. And so Jesus says, logically speaking, the path of wisdom, the path that Solomon would encourage you to take is the path of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not something that varies. It is not something that shifts. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is what Jesus is constantly trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount. He's constantly trying to get us back to the heart. And so he's not saying that what the other righteous people were doing, what the hypocrites were doing, were inherently bad things. He's simply highlighting that God doesn't merely care about the activities themselves. He cares about the heart behind the activity, and that's what we need to address. Yes, God does care about you committing adultery. He does not want you to commit about commit adultery, but God cares about a lot more than simply the external physical action. He also doesn't want you to look upon another woman with lust whenever you've got your wife right here who should be the object of your desire, right? God cares about so much more than physical activities, right? So Jesus isn't simply spiritualizing these things and taking away the physical components. He's saying, no, we need to get to the heart of the issue because man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart. And so look at the things you value in this world. Look at how you're spending your time and what you're devoting your time to. That will show you what you treasure. What's the first thing you think about whenever you wake up in the morning? What's the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night? Those The answers to those questions will tell you what you truly value, and that will show you where your heart is devoted to, right? If you spend your every waking moment thinking about sports, I hate to tell you, but you're probably not serving God, right? God should be the heartbeat of the Christian, right? This is what we see with David, right? There are so many Psalms where David says, I seek you early in the morning and I'm in my bed late at night and I can't even get to bed because I'm lost in thought of you. This is who David was. Whenever you get to Psalm 27, 4, he says, one thing if I ask the Lord of that shall I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David says, there's nothing I want more than to dwell with God. That tells you about what he values, right? It tells you about what he treasures in his heart. And that's why David is called a man after God's own heart. That's why it was whenever Samuel was sent to go pick David as king that God told him, man looks to the outward appearance, God looks to the heart. And so what Jesus is saying here is not groundbreaking stuff that isn't found in the Old Testament. He's simply highlighting something that the scribes and the Pharisees had failed to understand right? They were serving God with their actions, but not with their hearts. And so Jesus is saying, take a step back and look at why you're doing the things you're doing and figure out what is your heart truly devoted to. And then he goes on in verses 22 to 23 to say this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verses 22 and 23 right here are probably the place where that gives people the most trouble in understanding what is being communicated uh, just because I don't think we think of eyes in the same way that Jewish readers typically think of eyes. And in order to understand this, you really have to go back to the Old Testament and you have to realize that in scripture, our eyes are basically organs of judgment and evaluation, right? And that kind of makes sense in our current culture as well. 
Uh, this is what our eyes serve the purpose of doing, uh, and this is why you always have uh, the imagery throughout Scripture of the blind receiving sight, whether that be metaphorically uh, in the Old Testament or literally whenever Jesus shows up to give blind people sight, right? Our eye, it evaluates things. It discerns things. Um, and throughout scripture, uh, even literally what I was reading this morning in my own Bible reading, I was in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I believe it was. And basically what God tells the people of Israel through Moses is he tells them, don't do what is right in your own eyes. Instead, do what is right in my eyes. And this is something that carries on. Whenever you get to the book of Judges, you have this phrase that's repeated again and again and again. There was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes, right? And so throughout the Old Testament, you have this idea of eyes being something that is used for evaluation and for discernment and for judgment. And typically, whenever man follows what is right in his own eyes, it leads him astray. And that's why man ultimately needs a king. Yahweh, the God of Israel, was supposed to be their king, but they didn't serve him. And therefore, um, through a long list of events, they eventually had a human king, which ultimately paved the way for the Davidic dynasty, which ultimately led to Jesus, who is now preaching the Sermon on the Mount as the definitive king who has the definitive eyes, uh, definitive eyes, which can judge between right and wrong. Right. And so there's this whole Old Testament theology about the eyes that really can trace all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, and Eve hears what the serpent says, but it is her eyes which ultimately lead her to destruction, right? She sees that the fruit looks tasty. She sees that the fruit looks desirable to make one wise, and she sees that it was beautiful, and ultimately that's what gets her to eat the fruit, right? The thing that caused her to embrace the knowledge of good and evil, something which belonged only to God, was what she saw with her eyes. And so throughout the rest of scripture, even going into the New Testament, the Bible places a lot less emphasis on what you see and a greater emphasis on what you hear. Think about in the Gospel of John, where Thomas, the whole reason he doubts is because he hadn't seen. And Jesus rebukes him and stuff, but he says, blessed are those who have believed without seeing. Uh, and the implication is that it's more blessed to believe because you have heard the testimony of what has been passed down. That's also a huge thing throughout Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is telling the people, you are the ones who saw what God did in the Exodus and in the wilderness. But now this future generation, they didn't see it. So they're going to have to live based off of what they have heard from your testimony. And so the whole Bible is basically pointing out the fact that what you see is how you make judgments. And typically man does not make very good judgments because his heart is deceptive, right? And it's desperately wicked. And so a better way to live is basically to live based off of the testimony of what you have heard from trustworthy eyewitnesses, right? Rather than you yourself deciding between what is right and wrong, trust in what God has said is right and wrong, right? Build your life upon his word. That's the same point that Jesus is making right here. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the way that you see everything around you. It is the lens through which you take in things in your own life. If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. If you know what is truly right and truly wrong, your whole body will be full of light and you will live righteously before God. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
right? If you've got blind eyes, then you're basically screwed when it comes to actually navigating life on your own. Because if you cannot see clearly, how are you going to judge between what is right and what is wrong? This is the issue that we face whenever we go into the Old Testament and the people are constantly being told, don't do what's right in your own eyes. Because we are inherently spiritually blind as individuals, right? You can have people like the scribes and the Pharisees who are going around calling themselves righteous, but do you know what Jesus calls them? blind guides because they are trying to lead everybody when they themselves have eyes that are bad and therefore their whole bodies are full of darkness. They go through these righteous actions which aren't actually righteous before God. They're merely righteous before man. And so Jesus says, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness, right? If you look at something and call it light, but you're a blind person who can't even see light, then you are truly being led astray. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing is ultimately what Jesus is saying is the same exact thing about the treasures on earth, treasures in heaven thing. It doesn't make sense to follow your own judgment if you're blind, right? If you can't see, you shouldn't be the one leading the pack. Instead, you have to look to the person who does see. And just in the context of the sermon, who is it who is the light of the world? followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus are the ones who are going to be the light that are guiding everybody. And the reason why they are the light is because Jesus himself is the light, as we see in the gospel of John, right? So Jesus is the light who gives light to the rest of us. And if we follow him, then we can actually have an eye that is the lamp of the body. And it's going to be an eye that is clear so that our whole body is full of light and everybody will see our light and follow after us. But it doesn't make sense to lead the pack if your eye is full of darkness and if the light that is in you is full of darkness. Jesus is making the exact same point right here as he was making in the previous point. And he's going to make the same point in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Um, other translations will translate that word as mammon or as the world. Um, and ultimately, it's all referring to the same thing. This is where Jesus is truly getting to the meat of what he's trying to address. When it comes down to it, there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who are ser- there are those who serve there are those who serve God, and there are so those who serve the world, right? those who serve God and those who serve wealth. And once again, when we're thinking of wealth here, we don't want to be so narrow as to simply think we're talking about physical riches. We're talking about all the things that this world has to offer, physical riches being one example of that, right? Um, and basically he's saying there, there, are no, there are no other types of people, right? There's a fine line being drawn here. And Jesus is saying, you're either in my kingdom or you're outside the kingdom. There is no in-between. There is nobody who can truly say that they are serving the kingdom of God if they are not serving the kingdom of Jesus. And that is what he's highlighting. No one can serve two masters, right? You might try to straddle the line and you might try to live for both God and for wealth, but it's not going to work. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Why is that true? Because these two masters, they value vastly different things. It would be one thing if the two masters had basically all the same opinions about everything. Then you could serve both of them easily. But the issue is, if two masters value all the same things, 
then why would there need to be two masters? You would just need one master. And so by there being two different masters, we see that there is a split and there is a division here. And if somebody is trying to serve both of them, he's going to fail in regards to serving both. And not only is he going to fail, but he's going to end up hating one and despising the other, right? Because if God tells you to do one thing, and if God telling you to do this forces you to deny yourself and to pick up your cross and to follow him and to not choose to be the richest person in the world, well, if you really value riches, you might try to serve God, but you're going to hate everything he's commanded you to do. If God tells you to deny yourself specific lusts, but man, you really value that lust, well, over time, you're going to come to hate God and despise him because he is telling you to deny yourself the very thing you valued most highly. On the other hand, if you value God above everything else, and this lust comes beckoning in, asking you to serve it, you're going to come to hate that lust because that lust is doing nothing more than trying to steal you away from the master who deserves all your affection and devotion. And that's what Jesus is highlighting here. There is no middle ground. You can't serve both the ways of the kingdom and the ways of the world. You have to pick which one you're going to serve or else you're going to spend your entire life trying to straddle the line. And in the end, you're going to be kicked out of the kingdom because God does not accept anybody other than the ones who are truly serving him. So, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And you might think that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here, but he's not speaking metaphorically in any way whatsoever. Both God and wealth are genuine, legitimate masters that demand your time, your energy, your talents. And all you have to do is look out into the world in order to see this, right? Think about how many people are genuinely mastered by their time, right? I mean, mastered by their wealth, right? The jobs that they take are purely decided upon based off of how much money they are going to make, right? And they live their entire lives trying to decide things purely based off of how it serves them physically or ultimately how it will serve their family physically. And don't get me wrong. We are called to provide for our family. And we are called to take care of them. But ultimately, what Jesus is going to highlight here is that the way that you treat wealth and the things of this world during your time on earth will testify to who you ultimately trust. So I'm not in any way suggesting that you should not provide for yourself or for your family. What I am suggesting is that a lot of the times we are not trusting God to provide for us and for our family. That is what Jesus is going to highlight here. Because so often we will justify doing certain things, and in doing so, we will sacrifice faithfulness. And in doing so, like we'll start off and we'll be like, okay, I want, like, we'll have good intentions, right? I don't think the scribes and the Pharisees had bad intentions. We'll start with good intentions and we'll say, I really want to do this in order to provide for the people that God has entrusted to my care. But here and there, we'll begin to sacrifice devotion. And all of a sudden, we are devoting endless hours to working a job. And we're not even spending time with the loved ones. And our thoughts are so consumed with providing that we have forgotten to trust in God to provide. And we have forgotten to actually rely on God or think about God or devote any time to God in any way whatsoever. And this is the way of the world, not simply outside the church, but I see this so much inside the church. How people are so easily ensnared by physical desires. And we allow them to pull us astray. And Jesus, just, I'm trying to highlight the fact, this is not a metaphor. 
Wealth and the things of this world are genuine masters that will lead us astray if we are not careful. And the child of God has to go out of his way, and the kingdom of citizen, and the kingdom citizen has to go out of his way to make sure that he is not being pulled astray because our hearts are naturally going to incline us towards that and our minds are naturally going to justify it. But what we have to do is we have to trust in the word of God rather than our own word. And we have to trust in what God says rather than what we say and what our heart says. We have to learn to place our trust and our reliance and our value and our dependence on the testimony of Christ Jesus and on what he tells us to do. And ultimately, that is the point that Jesus is going to make going in to verse 25. And this is what he says. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the with the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly fathers know that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Verse 33 is the thing that confirms to us that all of this ties into the immediately preceding context. So often we read these passages in isolation, and we just talk about anxiety on its own. But you have to realize that anxiety here is being talked about in the broader context of what you value in the kingdom. And yes, this can be applied to anxiety in general, but what basically Jesus is saying is that anxiety is a choice. Don't miss that. Our world does not like to say this, right? We do not like to say this in the church. We do not like to say this in the broader secular society, but anxiety is a choice and it's not something that you have to give into, especially as a kingdom citizen, right? If you are not a Christian and if you do not serve Jesus Christ, then you have no choice but to be anxious. But as a kingdom citizen and as a Christian, anxiety is 100% a choice that you might choose to make every single day. And that is what Jesus is getting onto here. But before I actually break this down, and I'll actually walk through this fairly quickly, uh, I do want to read a quote to you from Peter J. Lightheart, who I've quoted a few times in the past, but um, basically uh, I think what he says here is really, really good, and he probably puts it better than I ever could, and so I'll just quote him. He says this, The old city is a city of anxiety. For Jesus, anxiety is not just a feeling or emotion that we privately experience. It is that, but it is also the organizing principle of a world, a structure and a regime, a master and a power. Anxiety is the ether of the world outside the kingdom of God. Anxiety keeps the stores open 24-7. Anxiety keeps the highways busy until the wee hours of the morning. Anxiety keeps people working late at the office. Anxiety is what builds the skyscrapers. Anxiety is what drives consumer spending. Anxiety is driven by a very simple insight, the insight that we are limited creatures 
in the particular fact that the future sets the boundary of our limitations. We cannot see past the next moment, much less the next day or month. Yet we want to be able to manage things. We want to secure our future. We want to be able to know something about what we will eat, drink, wear, do next year, five years, ten years. We want to know that our portfolio will be expanding. Our children will still be living nearby. We will still have a spouse. And we can't. If you know that you can't manage the future, and yet you try to manage the future, there can be only one result, anxiety. This is the way of the world. I thought that was a fantastic quote, and I wanted to share it, because that is exactly what Jesus is addressing in the passage right here. Right? He is pointing out that anxiety is a choice. It is not something that you have to succumb to. It is not something that you have to give into, even if the doctors tell you that you're naturally inclined towards it. Which, you know what? You might be naturally inclined towards it. All of us are naturally inclined towards one thing or another. I am not somebody who has suffered from anxiety as much as some of the other people that I know. Right? Some people, they just naturally jump to anxiety. I naturally, like, even whenever my dad died in my own arms, I was not anxious I was more just trying to figure out what to do, and I very quickly was able to trust in God in that. And I'm not saying that to praise myself, I'm just saying that naturally that is not one of the vices that I am tempted towards, right? I've been tempted by plenty of other things. Some people will struggle with anxiety more than others, but Jesus is saying about anxiety the same thing he said about adultery and the same thing he said about lust. Don't do it. He's just saying, stop it. But what he's doing is he's giving a logical reason for why we should stop it. And it goes back to the same things that we've already talked about in the earlier verses today. He's saying that it doesn't make sense to be an anxious person when you trust that there is a good God and King who reigns over all and who will provide for his people. And in order to understand this, you're going to have to look at creation because creation itself testifies to the glory of God. So he says this, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. This is something that we don't, like, we live in such a luxurious culture nowadays where we don't have to worry about this stuff. Jesus' original culture, they did have to worry about this. They didn't always know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't know where their clothing was coming from, right? I've got, like, three closets filled with clothes. These guys, they might have had, like, one or two pairs of clothes tops, right? Unless you were wealthy, right? We live in a very luxurious culture, yet at the same time, anxiety is at its peak nowadays. Yet Jesus is talking to these people and he says, don't worry about that stuff. And I imagine that their response would be the same way that we would respond. And we'd say, whoa, 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 Jesus. What do you mean don't be anxious? I need to figure out these things. And immediately we would start arguing with him to justify why our anxiety is warranted. But Jesus is going to speak as Solomon in all his wisdom and say, no, I don't care what justification you give. Anxiety is not warranted in the heart of the Christian. And he says this, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This is exactly what he was just highlighting in the previous verses, right? Don't serve the rewards of earth. Serve the treasures in heaven, right? That's what you need to value. And is he saying that food is bad and that clothing is bad? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying that if you allow your entire day to be overturned because you're concerned about worldly things, worldly provision, then you are serving the world right? That's ultimately what it comes down to. And he says, for instance, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Just like Solomon tells people, tells the sluggards to go look at the ant. So Jesus tells people to look at the birds of the air. I imagine that he might've even pointed at them right now as he's sitting on the sermon, right? He points at them, says, look at the birds. 
Doesn't God provide for them? Yet they are not constantly anxious. They're not constantly seeking more for themselves. They are simply trusting that their creator will provide. They don't even have to trust, right? We don't even know what goes on inside of a bird's mind. They just simply go about life and God provides. And you'd say, but how do I know that I'll have enough for what I need? You, you don't. You have to trust, right? That's the whole point. You have to trust. And you know what? Your life might not look how you wanted it to look. And that's okay, right? You might be saying, well, how do I know that I'm going to have three five-star meals every single day? You don't know that. Because ultimately, what you're trying to do whenever you're living this anxious life is you're trying to be the God of your own life. And you're ultimately trying to provide for yourself and you're trying to do what's right in your own eyes. Jesus is saying, you need to learn to trust God. And you need to learn to let God be the light that shines your path. And you need to let God be the one who sets the example for you so that you can follow in his footsteps and you can do what he wants you to do so that your life in the end will not be what you wanted, but what he wanted. And so if he wants you to be wealthy, he'll provide the means to make you wealthy. If he wants you to be poor, he'll be the one who makes you poor. If he wants your YouTube channel to have a million subscribers, he can be the one to do it. And if he wants your YouTube channel to be small, he can be the one to do that too. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is stop doing what's right in your own eyes, do what's right in the eyes of God. And in order to do that, you have to learn to trust him. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? He's pointing out how it's illogical. Like you can't add anything to your life by being worried. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Right? Solomon was a king. He was the richest man in the world at the time. He was the wisest man in the world at the time. Yet you know what he did? He was a botanist. He studied flowers and he studied plants. He had all these things in the world. He had the finest clothing. Yet even he was perplexed and amazed by the plant life and the things that God had created. And that's what Jesus is pointing out, right? Solomon, he had to work his butt off and he had to do all these things in order to become the man that he was. And even then, it was ultimately because God provided him the wisdom necessary to do it. And because his father had also provided him a good foundation on which to build, right? So even Solomon, the only reason he became that is because he trusted in God and he trusted in a man after God's own heart to provide. But even Solomon, he had to work his butt off to become the Solomon that we know from scripture. The flowers, the lilies, they didn't have to work at all. All they had to do was be watered and trust their creator to provide. Once again, lilies can't think, but that's the whole point, right? Sometimes we get too much in our heads and Jesus says, just stop it. Be like a lily, be like a bird. Trust in God for once and let him be the one to provide for you. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He says these flowers are going to be thrown into the fire and we're not even going to see them anymore. You have an eternal reward in heaven. Is not God going to provide for you? And if you don't trust him in that provision, then how do you think that you're going to make it into the kingdom of heaven? If you're not willing to trust him in this life, how are you possibly going to trust him in the life to come? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek? For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Jesus is saying the scribes and the Pharisees, they spend their lives worrying about clothing and food and water. And that's why they're so busy trying to impress everybody, right? They want to impress people so that they can be held in high esteem and so that they can receive earthly rewards to provide for themselves on earth. And in doing so, even the righteous scribes and Pharisees in the end come out looking like nothing better than a Gentile, 
a pagan Gentile who seeks after the things of the world. Right? So here you have the righteous of the righteous religious leaders in Israel, yet they are no better than the wicked pagans living for the ways of the world. They just disguise it very well. That's what Jesus is highlighting here. And you can see it by their anxiety. Why do they feel the pressure to perform before people? Why do they feel the need to be honored by men? It's because they value the things of the world and it's because they're anxious about the things of the world. And so Jesus says, don't be like them. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He doesn't say seek righteousness. He says, seek God's righteousness, the Father's righteousness, a righteousness that is redemptive in nature, a righteousness that is genuine in nature, not self-seeking. It is a selfless, sacrificial form of righteousness that seeks to take the evils of the world upon yourself in order to produce good in this evil and sinful broken world. That is the righteousness that he calls us to adopt and pursue in order that we can help God's kingdom be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he says, if you seek the kingdom and if you seek his righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. What are the other things? Food, drink, clothing. If you do this, God will provide. Remember what he said in the prayer? Give us this day our daily bread, right? Why? So that you can do this, right? We ask God to provide for us so that we can further his kingdom and so we can bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, as long as you're being faithful to God, you don't need to worry because God will give you what you need for a life of faithfulness. Will you have a Lamborghini? Will you have a Ferrari? Will you have a 17-room mansion? I don't know. That's up to God to decide. His whole point is that don't do what's right in your own eyes because the light that is in you is most often darkness. And if the light that's in you is darkness, how much more will your body be full of darkness? Do what's right in God's eyes. Don't be like the people of Israel who had no king and did what was right in their own eyes. Make God your king. Make Jesus your king and do what's right in his eyes. So do not worry about tomorrow or tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is how Jesus just brings this whole thing to a conclusion. And he uses it. He, he does this by once again, just highlighting how illogical it is to be anxious over worldly things. He says, you can't even change what tomorrow, what's going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to have plenty of things to worry about. Then deal with that when it comes around, right? For right now, be faithful to God and trust in him. Because in the end, there's no way to ensure that earthly wealth will be preserved and treasuring things on earth is bound to lead to anxiety because we cannot guarantee the future. The cure for anxiety is to trust in God and to trust in the kingdom community that God has placed you in. Because if we are all providing for one another, and if I see that my brother or sister in Christ is not being provided for in all that he needs, then maybe if I have excess, I'll recognize that God has appointed me to help provide for them. And that's exactly what Jesus said, right? If somebody asks you of your tunic, give them your cloak also, right? It all ties together. It's all about loving God, loving others, trusting God, and not trusting in the ways of the world. The things in the world are not inherently bad, but trusting in and relying on and depending on the things of the world, that is bad. And that is something that Jesus will not allow his kingdom citizens to do. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. 
Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.